Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Digital technology has brought many benefits, but it also comes with growing threats to our privacy, our families and businesses, our health and our freedom. From cancel culture and propaganda to data collection, surveillance, and social manipulation, there is a digital contagion. We are surrounded by countless technologies that influence our behavior and threaten our society and potentially our livelihood. We need systemic changes, political and economic reform, better rule of law, and decentralized private associations that limit the power of the state and large corporations. We also need a new and better technology to serve people instead of manipulate them. In this episode, we're bringing you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2021 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Michael Matheson Miller speaking on his new book, Digital Contagion, 10 Steps to Protect Your Family and Business from Intrusion, Cancel Culture, and Surveillance Capitalism. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, so good, good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you today uh, briefly about this little book I, I, I wrote called Digital Contagion. Thank you. Um, and on, on a very big topic of digital technology, how to think about digital, digital technology, and some steps to do. So, you know, obviously digital technology has brought us many benefits, right? There's a lot of wonderful things, uh, especially we just came through uh, COVID, where we were not only isolated, but we were actually able to see each other on Zoom and a host of other things. Uh, we're able to work, a lot of the work that Acton does is international. Uh, we're able to do things that we wouldn't be able to do without digital technology. So there's a lot of benefits to digital, techno digital technology. But it also comes with some negatives. And I think one of the themes that I'll talk about here is that when we entered into the digital age, now we have some high school students here who were born in the digital age, okay? But I would say even high school students who are born in the digital age, we still are operating under a lot of the assumptions of a non-digital age. And so we're, in some ways, we kind of use technology and we're unaware of what we're actually doing, what we're actually giving away, and what the technology is doing to us. And so... I argue, oh, there, I get to do that, that there's a lot of things that also come along with digital technology. So behavior modification, which I'll talk about, about a little bit. Cancel culture. Surveillance capitalism, what Shoshana Zabouf has called surveillance capitalism. Just a question of privacy. Does privacy matter? This constant intrusion into our lives. And, and, and maybe if you don't follow that, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Um, the effects of technology on our mental health and our social and political life. Um, so the, one of the first things, of course, that we, a lot of people know about, this is in the news a lot, is cancel culture. Right, so uh, Ryan Anderson, who's actually lectured at the Acton Institute, he wrote a book on transgenderism. It was, it was taken off of Amazon. Um, Facebook did a blockout of news at one time in Australia. Now, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but imagine you're a plumber and your main website 
is on Facebook for your business and Facebook gets shut down. You're completely fragile. So we think about, we're putting a lot of our, of our information, our business, a host of other things, our advertising, and we're relying upon things like Facebook, but that at any moment can turn you off. And it's not just Facebook, it's Google and other things. Oh, that was not I, okay. Uh, and of course, um, in, this, in, the, in, in this period of COVID, there's debates over, like, how should we think about COVID? Do masks work? What kind of masks work? What are the best masks? And a, a sitting senator, Rand Paul, um, used scientific, he was giving uh, you know, an example. He was talking about whether masks work or you know, the N95 mask, et cetera. And it was very reasonable. And he was making a case, and he was suspended from YouTube. So now you have this question of government wanting to get across a certain kind of way of thinking and then using technology companies, in a sense, to enforce that. So this is the problem you know, of cancel culture. Now, there's a lot going on there, and I only have about 30 minutes, so uh, we can talk about some of it in the Q&A. But this is, the, this is the, the, um, you know, kind of at the forefront of how, how we think about a lot of the problems. But cancel culture really is just the tip of the iceberg. I think there's actually much deeper issues that are going on, uh, questions of privacy and behavior modification and other things. So uh, Jaron Lanier, whose book I refer to here, wrote a little book called 10 Arguments to Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now or Right Away. And uh, Lanier is one of the founders of virtual reality. You can kind of see him there, okay? He's got these long dreadlocks that sit here, and he kind of has a high voice, and he talks about things like this. And he's super interesting to watch. And, um, and he, he's a musician. And one of the founders, I said, of virtual reality, he worked at Atari in the 1980s. He's been in technology his whole life and studied under some very famous uh, computer scientists like Marvin Minsky and others. And, and he says, look, we're actually being behavior modified. We don't realize, and this goes to the question of privacy, when we use a free service like Google or Facebook, right, we're giving a lot of information to them. Well, that information is collected analyzed through very sophisticated algorithms with artificial intelligence, okay, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but artificial, sophisticated algorithms, and certain, like uh, an avatar of each of us has been built, and large technology companies getting incredible amounts of data with sophisticated algorithms are, have a lot of information about us that they can actually use to sell us things, to direct us in certain ways, to move us down a pathway of different kinds of thinking, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so Lanier, who again, I, and I talk about his technology for a reason, because he's not a Luddite, okay? He's one of the founders of virtual reality. He says, quote, we're being tracked and measured constantly and receiving engineered feedback all the time. We're being hypnotized little by little by technicians we can't see for purposes we don't know. We're all lab animals now. And Lanier tells a story in one of his TED Talks that I, I like to tell. He says, he, he refers back to Norbert Wiener's book. Norbert Wiener wrote a book called Cybernetics, The Human Use of Human Beings, okay? If that's not an ominous title, I don't know what is. The Human Use of Human Beings. And he was talking about the development of behaviorism and some of the work of B.F. Skinner and Pavlov and other, other psychologists. And some of you probably know the story of Pavlov's dog, right? So you, 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 you uh, ring a bell and give food to the dog, and you ring a bell and you give food to the dog, and you ring a bell and you give food to the dog, and then you ring a bell, and with no food, the dog begins to salivate because you've conditioned the dog to operate in certain ways. Well, some of this conditioning actually takes place through digital technology. So you're watching YouTube, for example, and uh, you get an, a recommended video. 
and then another recommended video, and another recommended video. And if you're on Twitter or, or, or Instagram that have these streaming things, you'll, you'll go down, and you just want more, and you just absolutely want more. And these, these technologies are not accidental. They're actually built using some of this operant conditioning ideas. And there's a, there's a lab at Stanford run by a man named Fogg, who it's called, the, it used to be called the Persuasive Technology Design Lab. They've changed the name. And they study how to create technologies that are addictive, that gives you like a dopamine shot. So Tristan Harris says like, there's this race to colonize the brainstem, right? That the technology is giving you information, you wanna see what happened. Now, how many of us in this room have ever, first of all, how many of you use social media? Okay, all right. How many of you use Google? Okay, all right. So. Let's just say in social media, how many of you ever posted something on social media and said like, I wonder if anybody's looked at it? And you're sitting there like in the middle of work, doing reading, thinking about something, and you're like drawn to figure out whether somebody has liked your, your post or what they've commented on, okay? And that's natural because we're human beings, we're social beings, we're embodied, embedded persons, we're social beings and we wanna be affirmed. We also are, we also are imitative. We imitate what other people want. So now you take our natural social nature, embodied, embedded, and you kind of use digital technology to encourage a contagion and a desire for affirmation, okay? And that's how these technologies are designed. It's not an accident, okay? They didn't like, they didn't think, oh, how, how do we, we really don't want people to use our technology. No, the opposite is we want you to spend as much possible time as we can. Right? And so, so there's a lot of things that are going on there uh, with, with digital technology and behavior modification because the more data that you give and the more data that, whether it's large tech companies or companies that the tech companies sell it to, all right, the more people know about you, the more they can actually um, moderate you or modify you and influence you to act in certain ways, all right? And so <clears throat> a lot of what we're seeing, in fact, and there's, there's I think, a, a number of things that are, are coming up. One of the things we're seeing is just a lot of propaganda, okay? If you go into Google, I did this. Uh, somebody actually told me to do this, so I tried it. And you write, can a man? And the autofill is, get pregnant. So here's a question. When you use Google, is it a neutral platform? Or is it an, it's an algorithm. Is the algorithm simply neutral? Like the algorithm just kind of like popped out and it's this like godly neutral algorithm? Or when we think about artificial intelligence, what is artificial intelligence? They're very sophisticated algorithms written by human beings, okay? To, and then, let's, on the other side, let's you do a psychological test. We're going to collect all the information about you with a specific algorithm, and then we're going to interpret the algorithm. And who does the interpretation? Another algorithm? Human beings, right? So, and human beings, each of us, as embodied, embedded, right, have a specific vision of the world, a specific way of seeing the world. And so, if you look to Silicon Valley and the dominant uh, place of digital technology, you'll find and I'll talk about this in a minute, uh, that there's specific worldview, a materialist worldview, a hedonist worldview, that's shaping the way the algorithms are written, the code is written, and the interpretation of the code. So 
part of what's happening is not just behavior modification because you want to watch 20, just, just 25 more YouTube videos, right? Just 10 more minutes of, of video games, right? Hold on, I got to check my Twitter. So I have seven children, okay? But I really don't care about them. Let's be honest, I care about my Twitter feed. Okay, hey dad, yeah, whatever, hold on. Oh my gosh, I got a like. You know, and, and th that's how we act. So the thing is, you'll actually hear, we talk about, you know, it's really bad for children. And, I'll, and I'll, actually, I'll come back to this in a second. Oh, there we go, there we go. So um, the Wall Street Journal has done a couple things on, on mental health and seen how Facebook knows that Instagram is bad for mental health. TikTok serves up sex and drug videos to minors. They set up things for 13-year-olds, they set it up, and of course, it's going right there because that's where all the money is, okay? And so these, there's propaganda and there's a, a vision of reality embedded in the technology. It's not neutral. If there's one thing you get from, from this talk, know that digital technology is not neutral, okay? Technology is not neutral. Technology has effects on us. Now, I'm talking about digital technology. I'm gonna go back to propaganda here in a second, okay? Um, does anyone know the answer to that? The answer to that is no. Okay, but, uh, but just in case you didn't know, I gave it away early. All right, so um, I'm happy to explain if anyone needs explanation. All right, so, so one of the things I want to talk about is technology, just briefly, because sometimes we think, well, you know, we're only talking about digital technology. All technology affects us for good and for ill. And so I use this. I'm using a PowerPoint. I'm using a lot of digital technology right now. I like digital technology, but I also know that it's dangerous. It's threat. All technology shapes us, some for good, some for ill, and there's always a trade-off. So when you think about the development of the southern United States, what are two huge economic factors, economic uh, shifts that change the development of the southern United States? Anybody have an idea? What? No, later than that, sorry. That's very important, obviously. Yeah, what else? Air conditioning. Air conditioning, Air conditioning and cars completely transformed American society. It transformed the way we work. It transformed the way we think. Okay. And, you know, uh, uh, Neil Postman has an interesting book called Technopoly, and it goes back to, like, the question of writing. You know, everyone was worried when you started writing, people were going to forget things, right? The printing press changed things. Clocks changed things. And the thing is, the effects of technology often go far deeper and far beyond the idea or the invention of the inventors of those technology. So who are some of the inventors of, of clocks? Well, monks. Monks wanted clocks to say the hours. Instead, the clocks got used for trains, right, and for secularization. There's, there's trade-offs, and this is very complex, all the things I'm saying. It's not a simple, linear point. But my point is this. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking, oh, it's just a neutral tool. Because it doesn't, we don't just use it, it shapes us. And it's especially, I think, important when we think about digital technology because it's not, it's even more than a car, which you drive in and it can transform the whole way of like life and suburbs of everything. Here, it's, we're going existentially into the phone, okay? And you, it's such a, like a deep human relationship. We're seeing people on the phone, we're talking to people on the phone, and we're experiencing what had been an embodied, embedded experience of human relationships with people, seeing people, watching their faces, seeing their eyebrows move, watching how their hands move. All of those things are now disembodied. And we become accustomed 
to thinking of ourselves as disembodied. All right? Now, this is, I'm going to just touch on, but I want you to think about this for a minute. The dominant way we think about what it is to be a human person is in a very, it's either materialist, right, that I'm simply matter, that I'm determined by my neurology. So there's like, um, you know, pretty famous kind of atheist materialists like Sam Harris who say, you know, we are abs- just simply determined. We make absolutely no choices. None of you made a choice to come here. It's just part of your whole uh, biological and neurological determination. And he gives long speeches on why uh, free will doesn't exist. Right? I've always been perplexed at that. Like, I'm not sure how he's going to expect me to change my mind uh, if I'm determined to believe in free will. Okay, but that's a whole other question. Okay, but that's one side of the, like, the neurological determinism. That is deep into Silicon Valley. Okay, deep. Other parts of materialism are this idea that we're just matter and we're a technical problem. So there's a very famous Israeli philosopher named Yuval Harari who has written a couple of big books that are, you know, they're endorsed by President Obama, by Mark Zuckerberg. He thinks death is just a glitch. That we're just going to solve technologically. We're going to like upload ourselves. Okay. If you think that's like just in Marvel comics, Right. There are billions and billions of dollars being invested in what's called transhumanist movements. Okay? The other part, and then there's another part about that somehow we're, we're our person and our body are so our body's just over here, and my real me is just driving around in my body like I'm driving around in a car. Like, you know, oh, sorry, I didn't hit you, my body hit you. Okay? And so start to think about these, these images, right? And start to think about technology and how they're going on so that we have deep confusion of what does it mean to be embodied, embedded person. So the idea like, oh, maybe I'm a girl inside. Like, no, because you're an embodied, embedded person. Your biology is not accidental to your interior self. It's a disordered way of thinking. Okay. Now, this is on digital contagion. At the Acton University, I always give lectures on philosophical anthropology. It's the thing I like the most. And all my temptation is to tell you why you're not driving around your body like you're driving in a car. But I'm an incredibly disciplined person with very good hair. And I'm going to stay focused on digital technology. But I don't want you to forget that how we think about ourselves as a person is influenced and is technology is influencing us. Because if we're experiencing ourselves always kind of disembodied selves, that further encourages this element of these materialism and spiritualism. One last thing I want to tell you. There's actually a study, very interesting study, um, done on uh, what happens when a woman wears a bikini. And it took men, and they put you know, brain scans around the man, and they had them show the picture of a woman in a bikini. Okay? And the part of the brain that lit, lights up when the man saw a woman in a bikini was the same part that lights up when it sees like this, or the phone, or a hammer, a tool. And the part of the brain that lit up, that lights, sorry, that lights up when a person sees another person in a face was completely dark. Okay, it wasn't head and lit up. So that what happens is how we experience the world actually also shapes us and shapes how we see others. So there's a lot there, but I just want to put that like in your brain to think about. Okay, so the other problem I said is propaganda, right? So can a man get pregnant? So when you look it up, that's what you get. And then what answer do you get? 
Oh, what answer do you get? People who are born living as male cannot get pregnant, but a transgender man or a non-binary may be able to, however. Do you know what a transgender man is? It's a woman who says that she's a man. That's a woman, right? But notice what happens. So now you have millions of high school students throughout the world doing research papers, right? And this is what they get, propaganda. Now, propaganda is not new, right? Edward Bernays used propaganda to get um, women to smoke in the 20s and 30s uh, by, by um, connecting it to political movements. Okay, it's a great story. Um, propaganda is not new. Propaganda was used, of course, by Goebbels and, 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 and the German National Socialists, right? Propaganda was used, and the radio was used uh, in the Rwandan genocide, right, to kill uh, about 800,000 people in one month. So propaganda is not new, but you are being propagandized. I am being propagandized all the time. And it's constant, and it's coming across as neutral. So we already talked about the problems of mental health. One of the problems that's deep in the way digital technology works is it's free. Okay? And we've been accustomed to getting digital technology for free. Okay? But here's the question. And Jaron Lanier asked this, and George Gilder in his book, Life After Google, asked this well. I've actually interviewed both Jared Lanier and George Gilder about these things. Um, how do you get everything for free and become the largest companies in the world? Now, Apple's different because you're actually buying something. But Google, you don't pay for Google. Where's the money coming from? Well, there's a price of free. And that is, we are giving our data, which is being used, collated, and sold. All right? And so there's all of our data out there. Now, I know there's some libertarians who say, oh, I don't care if business gets my, as long as the government doesn't get it. I say, well, if the government just outsourced businesses to get it and they have the data, the government can get the data. And Balaji Srinivasan, whose um, work I think is very interesting, he tweeted this, um, even though I disagree with him on like, transhumanism and stuff, he says, Every hack of a government agency is foreshadowing. The state is collecting data they cannot secure. Sometime in the 2020s, the cloud will burst, and our unencrypted data will rain down on the internet. Did Google ever t pay you for taking a picture of your house? When you do Facebook translations and all, like Jaron Lanier writes about this, where do you think artificial AI translation services come from? From the billions of people who are doing translations on internet. The stuff is collected and used and monetized, okay? So there's a price of free, and a lot of the price of free is actually our time. The other uh, question, which I've already started to talk about briefly, is this idea of man and machine. I've, I've kind of talked about it. Is it working? There we go, right? This is, the new, this is from Mark Zuckerberg's The New Metaverse. So I just wanna let you know, your life is so miserable, but that's okay. You can escape your embodied existence and the reality of smelly people that you have to deal with every day, and you can now enter into the metaverse. Um, one commentator, James Poulos, actually notes that, in fact, everybody's just like from their torso up, all right? So there's just torsos kind of walking around, and like, it's my torso talking to your torso, okay? And we have this, again, disembodied, asexual beings, and that that this is how we're gonna solve the problems of our life. Well, let me tell you something, okay? What you want in life, if you don't already know it, okay, is you want deep, loving relationships. Most people, some people have the call to, to, to religious life, but most people, you wanna get married. 
to a nice woman or a nice man. You want to have children. You want to have deep, relation, loving relationship. That's what you want. Because joy, it cannot be grasped. Joy is the super abundant fruit of a love relationship. And love relationship means that we are in mutual self-giving. We're in mutual self-gift with another embodied, embedded person. Okay? Really quick, what do I mean embodied is that we're in sold organisms. All right? We're not, it's not an accident. Embedded means we're born into a family, we're born into a culture, we're born into a language, and we're living in a complex web of tradition and inheritance. Why is this communication possible? Because we speak English, which is an inherited cultural gift. Because there's rebar in this building. You know what rebar is? Rebar is the pieces that hold up the concrete so we're not getting collapsed in. Because somebody built electrical grids. Because somebody built, um, uh, developed audio uh, equipment. Because we have a whole in tradition of how to think and how to live and we move in this deep religious and cultural traditions. Why do we have this? Why aren't we all carrying sidearms? Because we have rule of law. And why do we have rule of law? Because we have, we have rule of law, we have private property, because we have an understanding that justice is impartial. Because in Leviticus 19.16, it says, don't judge people whether they're rich or poor, but because it's based on impartiality. And that, those ideas seep deep into the West. And we have commercial revolutions in the, in the, in the 800s to the 1300s. And we have the development of capitalism and banking and, and, and representative government and the Magna Carta in 1215. And then we get the American founding and we get all these, and here here we are, living embedded in all of those things. Now, I have a little essay called Don't Ignore the Invisible. If you spent your whole life paying attention to all the things that were going around, you would go insane. So don't do that. Please don't go insane. But don't forget that you're embedded. And what the dominant view in Silicon Valley is, is that you're not embedded. You're a disembodied kind of hedonistic consumer. And we're going to serve that up to you to get rid of your miserable life. Don't comply. Say no. Don't buy into the lie. Because the facts are, whether we believe it or not, code shapes us. Good code shapes us well. Bad code shapes us badly. Florence and Brasilia are two different kinds of code. Bach and Snoop Dogg are two different kinds of code. Okay. And good technology shapes us. The problem is, if you think about it, how many people who believe in an embodied, embedded human being, the importance of family and culture, and that joy can't be grasped, and that pleasure and joy are not the same thing, and that we think generationally, because children matter and grandchildren matter, and because because life has value beyond the immediate consumption of Chinese plastic stuff? How many of those people are writing code? Not many. So for the young people here, maybe you should graduate from um, Sacred Heart and go to college and then write code. Write good code. Write good digital technology that can shape us. So I'm not a Luddite. I'm not saying there's no, there's no um, uh, possibility to use digital technology, but code shapes us. We are being shaped. So let me go quickly because I have just a little bit of time left. There's, I think, three common errors. 
that people make. One, things can't be that bad. Let me solve that for you. They're bad, okay? All right. Now, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to a second. Two, I, I don't wanna be a Luddite. Like, you know, I don't wanna be a Luddite. We're not a Luddite. You don't, to say that you think that maybe digital technology is not appropriate for every part of your life, to say I'm gonna use like what Cal Newport calls digital minimalism, doesn't mean that you don't believe that technology is good. It just means that there's appropriate place for it. So at the Acton Institute, we talk a lot about market economies, which means we think it's really good to be able to buy and sell stuff for free. I mean, meaning not free, but I mean freely, without people telling you what to do. That's called commutative justice in the, in the tradition, what St. Thomas calls commutative justice. Just because I believe there should be commutative justice for an iPhone doesn't mean I think you should sell people or organs. So we make distinctions. You're not being a Luddite because you are thinking seriously about technology. And finally, it's like you don't want to be a paranoid. I tried so hard. The other day, my, uh, not too long ago, my, my teenage son came downstairs with a tinfoil on his head. And I was looking so hard for that picture, but I couldn't find it. So I'm sorry. Otherwise, this PowerPoint would have been better. Okay. Another one is, how is this different from advertising in the past? Well, I've kind of explained it to you already. Because you're not just looking at a billboard, it's looking at you, right? And there's actually studies like, you know, you have like a smartwatch. You'll sometimes go on a run, have your endorphins high, everything's great, and then you get an ad for stuff. Right? Because you're in, they're in a, you're in a mutual relationship. They're collecting data on you and selling stuff for you and giving you stuff, quote unquote, for free and making a lot of money off of you. <clears throat> All right? I mean, um, I have nothing to hide. Eric Schmidt, who is the CEO of Google, he said, you know, people have said privacy is over. He said, you know, you have nothing to hide. If you have nothing to hide, don't worry about it. But you do have something to hide because it's in private, loving conversations that love can grow. Because all the conversations that you have with your best friends, your mother, your father, your spouse, these things are not simply meant to be used as transactions by large companies. They're part of how you begin to flourish or continue to flourish as a human being. Very interesting. In the book 1984 by George Orwell and in the work of John Paul II, who would think that I'm going to bring them together, but I am, two things struck me. <clears throat> that Winston and Ju Julia start their relationship in a very kind of hedonistic, <clears throat> radical liberation. They're going to reject the totalitarian government and they have sexual relations as like a rejection. And the state doesn't care, no big deal. When did Julia and Winston become dangerous to the state? When they become tender with one another, when they become loving to one another, when the relationship is not simply just a, a, a commercial exchange, a transaction, but actually loving kindness. And Wojtyla, that's John Paul II, talks about tenderness is one of the ways to resist totalitarianism. And it is in private moments that love can grow. You absolutely have something to hide. Not because hiding is bad, but because it's private love that human flourishing takes place. And it's not simply made to be used by the state or by corporations to manipulate you. So you do have something to hide. And I'll tell you this. When um, Google said, don't be evil, was their motto, I knew they were bad that day. I'm not joking. When a bunch of relativists tells you don't be evil is their, is their motto, I knew you can't trust them. That's when I knew that day.
And um, <clears throat> I was right. Okay. <laughs> and the last one is, I can't do anything about it anyway. Okay. And here's the thing. I had dinner not too long ago at an Amish family's house. Um, has anyone had dinner at an Amish family's house? Okay. It's great. Okay. Wonderful, beautiful family. I was a little bit disappointed because I, I, I only have seven children and the, the father, who is my age, already has 25 grandchildren. So I was feeling kind of like a loser. Okay, but I made it. Anyway, so uh, now they're completely opted out of digital technology. They don't use digital technology. I mean, they, people, they have, they use, their friends use films for them. Okay, but, um, and they're happy. But for most of us, we can't opt out of digital technology. We just can't. We're just, it's, it's like part of our life, okay? So the question is, can you do anything about it? <clears throat> and I would say the answer is, we're never going to perfectly solve the problems of digital technology. We can't. But I think we can absolutely use digital technology in a better way. So the first part is we can, how we can use it in a better way. And the second part is we have to build better digital technology. And that's the two part. So yes, the answer is you can do something. But don't think about this as an apocalypse. Like, oh my goodness, we're all going to, okay, yes, you're all going to die. But probably not from this, okay? We, think of it as a bad storm. You want to be prepared. You want to, you want to be prepared on how you're going to deal with things. So if, and I'll talk about this in a second. So if you have a small business and you're only on Facebook, build your own website. Hold your own documents. Don't simply just take, oh, well, centralized digital technology is what we've been given, and that's all I can do, and I have no control over myself. You can manage your digital technology better. You can take more control over your digital life, and you do not have to simply be controlled by your digital masters in Silicon Valley and New York and Boston. So don't make that mistake that you can't do anything about it anyway. You do have agency. Behavior modification takes place, but you are a free being with agency. So, um, so in your hand, I gave you a handout. Now, normally, I collect data for this. In order to get this magnificent handout, so beautiful, um, the greatest handout, um, in order to get that, usually you have to give me your email. I collect data, and then I, okay, but I'm giving it to you here for free because you're embodied, embedded people. So there's a handout of that, and these are the 10 steps, okay, that, that I, I talk about. So let me just go for a couple of them really quickly. Number one. Pay for your email. That sounds crazy, but pay for your email. You pay for your plumber. You pay for water. You pay for electricians. You pay for gasoline. Pay for your email. Because when you use free email, you're now in, you're not in a contractual relationship. Okay, so uh, Dan mentioned I directed a documentary film called Poverty, Inc., and one of the things we look at is what you give free stuff to poor countries. Who's in charge? The people who give the free stuff. So... You can get ProtonMail, for example, which is Swiss-based. It uses PGP, which is called Pretty Good Privacy. I write about this in the book. You can get that for like $50 a year. That's nothing. Okay? <clears throat> Pay for your email because, and commerce matters. Here's why. Again, because we're embodied embedded beings. But here's the thing. If I pay you for something, or you pay me for something, now we're in a contractual relationship. Is it a thick relationship like my wife? No, but it's a contractual relationship. So I have a mutual, we have mutual obligations to each other. If I've sold you something and you've paid for me, then I have a responsibility to you. But if you're using the free stuff, I can take your data. I don't have to worry about like fixing it. I don't have to improve it. But if we're in a mutual commercial relationship, that actually 
is part of commutative justice. And so there's an interdependent, intersubjective justice relationship that goes on. Pay for your email. Use secure messaging uh, like Signal and things like that. Use a VPN, okay? How many of you use VPN? Okay, yes, good. If you don't use a VPN, it is very easy. It's a virtual private network. It basically just gives you a shade. I explain it in the book. I'm running out of time, so I can't give you too much detail, but it's in the book. You can get it for like $8 to $12 a month, Express or Proton. You can get it very quickly. It's very easy to set up. It's not impossible. Some of these things that I'm telling you, they're not impossible, okay? Turn off Siri and Alexa and voice recognition. Do not use it, okay? Do not use it because voice recognition works like this. If I say, hey, Siri, it's not on. If it turned on, it would know. You know you can test if your microwave works, by the way. It's like a Faraday cage. You put your phone in there and call it. And if the phone rings, your microwave's leaking, okay? Because the microwave's a Faraday cage. But all right, so you test your Siri. Test it. Hey, Siri, if it's like, hello, Michael, you look great today. Thank you. So why? Because in order for voice recognition to work, it, it's always on. It doesn't just turn on when you speak to it. That means it's always listening. Dr. Steve Barrows and I are about to write an essay. We're going to give you the, the hint today. If you're a Roman Catholic, do not bring your phone into the confessional. Do not. Because your phone can be heard. And if you're a priest, we're going to create Faraday. We're going to start, we're going to start selling confessional Faraday cages. Okay? We're going to make literally dozens of dollars on confessional Faraday cages. Okay? Um, all right, so, so don't use that. And then a couple of other things you can look, but own your own files. Use, your, use I recommend Brave Browser and DuckDuckGo or Swiss Cows as a search engine. And they, they don't have pornography on Swiss Cows. Uh, so that's good because pornography is evil, so don't look at it. Um, but use a browser and a search engine that respects your privacy. And then own your own files. Like, again, if you have beautiful pictures that you love of your family or friends, I mean, number one, you don't necessarily need them on Facebook anyway. Okay, share them with your friends. You don't need to put them on Facebook for the network effect, for the billions of people who are going to like what you, I mean, who cares? Share them with the friends, the people that you love. But also, if they're really important to you, don't just leave them there, because if you get deplatformed because you have a political or religious view that is deemed unacceptable later, and you're canceled, where, where's your stuff? Make sure you own your own stuff. So there's more I could do there, um, but I need to bring to Q&A. So I just want to end... Uh, I highly recommend this book by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism. It's excellent. Highly recommend. He also wrote a book called Deep Work. If I followed his work, I would be much more productive. And it's very interesting. Cal Newport is, has a PhD in computer science from MIT and is a professor of computer science at Georgetown. And he's telling you, be very careful about how you think about technology. It absolutely shapes you. And then finally, oh, okay. I want to end with what I started with, uh, that what I'm calling the Tocqueville option is uh, that I think what we need to do in reaction to digital technology is not just be careful of how we use it, but we also need to like, rethink how we're living. We live in a time of big state, big culture, big media, big tech, big education. We need to exit that, and we need to build new associations because here's the thing. Right now, we have a massive state and a little tiny individual. And so there's a, 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 a theory called on, on exit and voice, okay, which I won't get into deep, but if you have a voice, you can change it. But in some ways, you can't really change a big organization. So you have to exit the organization sometimes. You exit the organization, build new associations, and then that gives you a 
voice because one little voice is one thing, but associations create a more powerful voice. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we thinking about education? How are we thinking about healthcare, hospitals, et cetera? There's a pressing, increasing pressure from the secular state. Secularism is not neutral. Increasing pressure from the secular state to impose this materialist, disembodied, fake spiritualist view of the person on us and to require us to obey. The state has redefined a biological reality of marriage. Okay, that is a totalitarian act, and it's, it's requiring us to obey. So we need to build associations that enable us to create space. But the other thing is we can't simply build those associations and put them on big tech. We have to also build different kinds of technology. Now, there's some advances that some of you know about with what's called... Uh, so we need human-centered associations and human-centered technology. There's a new advance called distributed ledger technology. It's not that new, but it's new enough. That's from the Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is. Uh, and, um, and, and this idea that instead of having a centralized technology, you can have distributed ledger technology where we control our own data and not simply have to rely to outsource it to large tech companies. But at the end of the day, Technology is not going to save us. We're not going to be redeemed by the state. We're not going to be redeemed by technology. We're not going to be redeemed by the next economic policy. We can only be redeemed by love and by God. We have to avoid a, a utopian element. Right? And so right, the, the builders of the Tower of Babel said, let us burn bricks and make a name for ourselves." But we know from the Bible that God gives us a name. God gave Abraham a name. God gave David a name. God gives us each a, a name as we're known, as we hear in Revelation. And so ultimately, we're, and so if we put it into religious language, we are created in the image of loving God. And we are called to complete creation. <clears throat> we're called to invent and develop and build. Not to build the tower to become like God, but, but to become in, in the likeness of God, where we participate in the creative work through innovation, right? And as Christians... Right? We believe first in the Hebrew Bible, which says complete creation. We also complete redemption. We participate in the redemptive work of God through our work. So the point is not to, in a sense, back away and be afraid, and et cetera. The point is, how are we going to engage digital technology in a way that takes our embodied embedded seriousness, embedded in the serious, seriously, and that thinks about we can create complete creation in a way that is participatory, that actually creates human-centered associations and human-centered technology so that we can pass on to ourselves and our children and our grandchildren a life of meaning and joy and beauty and goodness, and we do not have to buy into the disembodied metaverse because your life is not terrible. Your life is filled with potential and goodness. So thank you for your time. Okay, we have some, a little bit of time for questions. Sir. What do you think about the future of AI and the embedded biases in the people that are programming AI? Oh, well, I mean, I think it's a real, I mean, I think it's a real problem. So, I mean, artificial intelligence is, has a lot of, uh, I mean, it's already around us all, all over the place, right? It's, it's being, you know, in your, in your car, when you check into the airlines, everything. So it's around us already. Um, I don't, it's, don't, don't think artificial intelligence is coming. It's here and it's shaping the way we think. Um, I think it's deeply problematic. 
I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying, um, that the people who are developing artificial intelligence have a very uh, either materialist or spiritualist view of the human person that doesn't take uh, human flourishing or privacy seriously. Uh, I think they think, I think there's a, a deep sense, and I think the state wants to align with this because it gives a way to control people. Um, so if you look at, for example, China's social credit system, right, where you're, you're ranked on points of like how, you know, did you cross the street in the right way? What is your, what is your views? I think w there's already a desire to move towards this type of artificial intelligence um, uh, credit score. And, and you see this, there's some work, actually, this is very interesting because there's an, actually an alignment between the right and the left on a lot of these things. A lot of the, some of the people I've, I, I quoted are, are, are very much progressives, but they're, they're, they're aware, like this is a serious problem. Uh, you see it with say racial uh, bias in artificial intelligence. You see it um, with a lot of different things. So yeah, I think the, the fact that a lot of artificial intelligence is being, uh, is, is built by people who do not value um, freedom or privacy or uh, human agency is a very serious problem, and we need to be uh, very aware of it. Sir. Do you have any insight, then, on how we build these human associations? Are there already existing associations that we would want to build off of, like um, church or other things? Yeah. How do we go about building those associations? Well, that, that's a, a, a very good question, and I, I'm thinking this through. I don't know if I have all, I, I definitely don't know the answers. I wish I did. Uh, but I think there's a couple of things I would say. So <clears throat> actually in this, in this little book, I, I quote, there's two, there's, um, in the Catholic tradition, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the importance of, of free association as a, as, a nat, as a natural right. And Alexis de Tocqueville in his wonderful book, Democracy in America, actually talks about how Americans really had Tons of associations. He says, Americans of all ages, stations of life, types and dispositions are forever forming associations. There's commercial, industrial, but also just thousands, uh, others of a thousand different types, religious, moral, serious, futile, very general, very limited, immensely large, and very minute, right? Americans combine to give fets, to found seminaries, to build churches, to distribute books, to send missionaries into antiquities, hospitals, prisons. He said, usually in, in, in um, Europe, right, in France, you'd find the government. In England, you'd find a territorial magistrate. But in the United States, you'd find associations. Robert Nisbet talks in medieval society, there were tons of associations that have gone on. So I think first thing we need to do is remember that the idea of forming associations is not some radically brand new thing. It's actually part of the medieval, part of the American tradition. Um, and, and, and so it's possible. Second, there was welfare before the welfare state. Right, so it wasn't as if everyone was really poor and was dying, and there was nothing in them. Then finally, the welfare state came. You know, in, the, in like say '48 with the Beveridge Report, and then the Great Society, the New Deal, and then the Great Society. It's not like there was nothing before that. So the the question we actually have models of that. So that's the first is to is to get that. Second, I think we we have to actually be a lot more intentional now about that. So if you think about the Knights of Columbus, right, which is a, a Catholic organization that provides insurance and disability and other things. One of the reasons is because a lot of Catholics were really excluded from a lot kind of participation in certain elements of life. So Catholic organizations came up to take care of each other. And they were mutual aid societies. Okay, you look at Jewish communities, look at African communities, right? A lot of immigrant communities. And again, I, I give the Catholic Church uh, as an example. Catholic schools, right, were our associational par parish memberships that are all funded privately. They were funded privately, 
All right. I mean, Catholic schools is like the dream of the Marxist is like, let's create schools where we send all of our children and we can catechize them. And we did. And instead, we let the Marxists take over. OK. And so now we, you, the chance of you going to a Catholic school and then remaining practicing your faith in college is like dropping precipitously. Right. So the thing is, we've actually built them. We have them. I, you know, this is actually a question for lawyers. There are lawyers here, I know. Uh, the question is, can and this is actually a, a real question I have. Samaritan Health Ministries, for example, uh, is a is a association where you get your health insurance. Now you're using regular hospitals, but you're paying each other to to you know you're writing checks for each other, and then you have rules that you that you abide by. And when you go, you always negotiate. It's one of your rules. You got to negotiate. They say, well, it's twenty thousand. I'll pay you ten. And the hospital says, okay, we'll take ten. I mean, it's amazing, right? And then you'd say, okay, I got it down from twenty to ten. People send checks in. You take the checks, you cash them, and you go pay your bill. So that's a mutual, those exist now. I think we probably need to, um, and then lawyers can help uh, correct this, but I think we probably need to work to build law. So by the way, when I say associations, I don't mean we're gonna leave politics. If you leave politics, then you're gonna have bad laws. So you need people in politics, you need people in law, you need people uh, in, in economic policy. It's not like a, a, a one or the other. But I think we've neglected the building of associations. Okay, not that we shouldn't keep doing other things. And I think we need to like, think about like, how can we run Catholic hospitals that maybe are membership associations? And that might be a way, for example, to get religious exemptions. I'm not sure. Okay, like lawyers will have to tell me if that's possible. But, but, but I think there, there are ways that we can provide solutions um, on a host of other things. And then I also think we need better technology to serve those. Right? So if you're, you know, I don't, I don't think, um, say, Catholic schools should be using Google. Google to lend to est. Okay. All right. That's for all the Latin studies. All right. Okay. So, yes, ma'am, you have a question. Cheryl. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Michael. You mentioned biblical Babel, and the Hebrew Bible has a very dark view of cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, Nineveh, do by their very nature large cities and large organizations, perhaps because of anonymity, produce the worst ideas in human history? Oh, is that a question? Yes. <laughs> Especially if they're in France. <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, it's a, that's a good question. I mean, I have to think about this question. I mean, I, I think that perhaps, okay, I get, you know they say in, in um, Congress you get to revise and extend your remarks, so I might have to resign. I, I think perhaps there's a couple of things. So the one is, like in Babel, right, all of them come together, and maybe being in the city makes you, makes you um, forget, it gives you a sense of power and forgetting like all the things that are making that happen, you, you kind of you have the sense of power. And then I think this idea that um, you, can, you can become, in a sense, like God. You, you no longer need, you're no longer, maybe, maybe it's perhaps because, especially if you're wealthy in a city, you're, you're insulated from, from the struggles of life, right? You're insulated from like, really, like connection to, to food and to, um, and to weather and a host of other things. I, mean, I have to think about, about how this would work. Um, but I, I, I would say I think it's, it's the temptation that we see, for example, in the Garden of Eden where, and then you see it in Babel and you see it 
I think throughout, is this recurring desire to become like God, right? And so um, Eve is both attracted by the delight and the desire to become God. And the two temptations, I think, of the human person are one is to become so enamored by the creation that you forget the creator. So you want, and almost then you become living like an animal because you become embedded in, the cre in, in, in creation, right? The second temptation is to try to make yourself into God, where you become the measure of truth, you become the arbiter of justice, and you decide what is the case. And I think it's maybe, um, you know, when you get a, a lot of people who um, are good but fallen together, uh, sometimes the fallenness takes over. Um, at the same time, I mean, I think there's something beautiful about the social nature of the person and how we are, as Aristotle describes us, political animals. We are people to live in cities. We're meant to live together and to work together. We have a social nature. So when, in, in, you know, in Adam and Eve, right, that it's not good for man to be alone. We are made to be in relationship with one another. And so, I, I mean, it's a, your question is deep. I have to think about it. I won't do justice uh, to this, uh, so I'm not going to try. But I, I, do, I do think that that is the, 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 tech, the, the city and, the, and techne and the, and the sense that we can, everything becomes a technical problem. And I think cities perhaps exacerbate that. So I think one of the, the, pro the challenges of our age is what I sometimes call the primacy of the technical. And there, there's two parts to the primacy of the technical. The first is that um, if you can do if you can do it, if it's that is if you're able to do it, you ought to do it. Like the the moral there's no moral guidance. It's just whether you you can do that or not. Right. I think that's the first part. So you know, can we clone human beings? Can we can we do this? Can we can we kill all the Down syndrome children? You know, I think it was they said, you know, we, had, we no longer have Down syndrome. And I think it was uh, Sweden or something. They decided, they, they told us they eradicated Down syndrome. I mean, like, if you killed all the bald people, you would also get rid of baldness. But that's not actually eradicating baldness. That's just killing people who are bald. Okay. And so there's this technical sense, like, oh, we can eradicate a child with Down syndrome. Okay. You're okay. Um, <laughs> This, the, the second part of the primacy of the technical is to see every single thing as a technical problem. And I think this is also another thing that's driving the way we think. So I talked about Yuval Harari. He thinks death is a glitch. So think about it. People think love, marriage, uh, children, everything's a glitch. So children, okay, I, I really want children. What am I going to do? Well, I don't want to deal with the yuckiness of marriage and having to put up with somebody. So I want a child, Okay. So I'll technically, we'll just you make one technically, okay? We'll, we'll use in vitro fertilization and we'll create the egg. Okay, we'll have a surrogate. Everything's a technical problem. I need to technically solve my problems with, um, with uh, um, you know, whatever it might be. And I'm going to, you know, sadness or whatever it is. And I can, we're going to create, we're going to create um, drugs and, and other things to solve your problems. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for, for, for drugs, for medicine. I think medicine is great. I think you know, psychiatric drugs can be very helpful. My point is the idea that everything is a technical solution, even so far that death is a technical solution. So what we're going to do is we're going to upload ourselves. We're going to take our, 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 our brain and all the things, are gonna, and we're going to upload it to a computer so that we can live forever, so we can solve the problem of death. Okay, But um, 
a friend of mine who I, I I'm, so I'm using, this is from a conversation we have, we have a lot, so I'm, I'm using his, I have to give credit where it is, but we, we have this conversation about like, think about what that means to upload. Think about what your life is actually like as embodied embedded. The idea and the transhumanist idea is that we're going to escape our bodies, okay? We're not going to take longevity another five years or eight years. We're going to take longevity forever. We're going to live forever, right? It's a religious vision. But think about what that means. So I have little children. Imagine I'm outside. It's summer day. I'm eating a peach. The peach is dripping on my, on my uh, arm. It's sticky. It's delicious. I smell pine. The wind is blowing. It's a beautiful day. My little child is dancing, twirling, and I look at the child. And I'm struck that I've been given a gift to be on such a beautiful day. And I smell, and I feel, and I taste. And I thank God for bringing me to this moment. And there's a tinge of sadness because I haven't done all I could. I haven't accomplished what I could. I don't love her enough. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to leave her. And there's fear that I might leave her too early. And then the pines come and it reminds me of the time when I was young and my parents took me to this beautiful place and I saw, smelled this smell for the first time. And I, th and I give gratitude for the fact that I had been loved and that I hope that I can love. And that even though I die, I'm gonna die, I have hope that I'm gonna see her at the future. How are you gonna upload that? That's an embodied, embedded, deep experience. The, this goes back to your question on AI. Like, if you have a very limited view of the human person, then you think we can solve all the problems technically. But if you take what the human being, what the human being is, Right? then we know that technology is something we use. And the problem we're facing right now is that, as a, a friend says, right, is the phone an extension of our hand or are we an extension of the phone? What's happening with technology? And the idea is right now, I mean, in transhumanism, um, there's, this, there's, a, there's somebody I, I recommend you listen to. His name is Asher Crisp, okay? He's, a, he's an Orthodox rabbi, and he has some lectures. And I actually, I, they're in the, they're recommended reading in here. And he gives, he kind of gives every year a whole, um, I had a conversation with him once. He's so interesting, okay? But he gives every year this, like, what's happening in technology. And he says, if you knew what was happening, you would run for the hills. And yes, you would. I mean, the things that they're doing right now that are capable right now to augment us to, in a sense, to, to make us cyborgs is there. It's real. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to address it? If we're just going to kind of walk into the digital world and assume that everything's good and that, that the big companies have our good in mind, we are going to find ourselves in serious problems. And it's a challenge to our humanity. Now, I don't believe that we're ever going to eradicate our humanity. Okay, that's what the utopian dream is. The utopian dream is we're going to create systems so good, so perfect that no one needs to be good, right? To quote Eliot. We're going to, we're going to have the state wither away. We're going to solve these problems. Every time we try to create utopianism, millions and hundreds of millions of people get eradicated. So I, I do think we have to be aware of this idea of the primacy of the technical, and it's related to the city, but I think it's deeply related to what Alexander Solzhenitsyn says beautifully, that the good, the line between good and evil is not out here. It runs through the human heart. And ultimately, there is no technical solution to the problems of evil, sin, suffering, and death, right? Jesus is not a technical messiah. He didn't come and like, solve all the problems, okay? Right? There's no technical solution 
to the sin, to, to, to those problems. And and this, in a sense, is there's two deep competing worldviews. Can we technically solve the problem of man, or is man not a problem to be solved, but deep meaning to be found and goodness to be lived? And I think that that's in a sense where we are. So this is not an anti. Uh, technology Luddite position. It's a question of, is, are we going to be the subject and the center of the economy and of politics and of technology, or are we going to be manipulated by our masters? And the last thing I highly recommend, if you haven't read it, the best books ever, The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. And he says this, man's power over nature is always some men's power over other men. It's never a question of, like, are we going to control nature? It's who is going to have the power to control other people. And Lewis, I mean, I don't have time to go into it, but Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, is what does it mean to be a human being? And he really deals with this question of technology right there, uh, you know, in the middle of the century. So I, we've run out of time. Thank you very much for, for your time, and I hope that you find this valuable. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.